the Norwegian method. I'm Olav Alexander Bu, peak human performance developer, coach to Christian Blumenfeld and Gustav Eden. I'm Dr. David Lippmann, a health and human performance specialist. And welcome to the Norwegian Method podcast. This podcast is sponsored by VO2 Master, the ultimate portable metabolic analyzer. Head to the show notes to learn how to get your first assessment kit free. Welcome back to the Norwegian Method podcast. Dave Lippmann here with Olav. Welcome back, Olav. Thanks. Today, <clears throat> we are doing the run episode. I've been anxiously awaiting this as a runner. This has been the episode I've been most interested in, in doing with you. And, you know, we've come to this point. We've learned so much about generalized methodologies, how they pertain to swimming, how they pertain to, to cycling. And now we're on to running. So I think probably the first question I want to start with is running's very unique in a triathlon because it poses a, the greatest injury risk from an eccentric, and the only eccentric loading really in the, in the discipline, right? So you have eccentric loading, you have a greater injury risk. Does this change how you prescribe running or how you may modify load or anything like that around training for athletes? Um, no, not really. Um, uh, and one of the reasons for that is because triathletes are quite lucky in the sense that they already diversify their training load over three different sports. Um, and that in itself actually acts almost like our injury prevention. Further, I think that uh, uh, if you look at the specialists, uh, now there was a new world record set by set by Kelvin, and he already was so he was quite open about, for example, the volume that he is putting in, and yep. the volume that he is putting in is like enormous, yeah, enormous, yeah, probably the highest I've ever heard in the history of any marathoner at yep. that level. So it again, it just shows that at, for triathletes, uh, volume is absolutely not a problem when it comes to each of the separate disciplines. Um, what really is the limitation is the level of accuracy or precision that you're putting in, making sure that you actually nail or let's say balance the intensities in a good way. Because one of the things that I think most people don't think about, uh, think about is that like we talked about in the previous episode, we talked about, uh, yeah, so the relationship between velocity, force and power. Yep. So the, yeah, so this one basically scales uh, exponentially. Um, and a small change in, in velocity obviously will increase force uh, exponentially, um, uh, at least at some point. But that means also that that even if you increase the velocity a little bit, of course, it's not like now you're doubling necessarily the, let's say, the, the total force, but it's increasing exponentially with increasing velocity. So, so it feels little, it might be little, like if you just measure the change in terms of like, for example, uh, impact loading or force change. But the biggest threat to injuries, I would very often say, is that when you're starting to fatigue a little bit, you start to shift and compensate and you start introducing a pattern, a movement pattern, which maybe then uh, ends up stressing smaller parts that doesn't necessarily have gotten the same level of training that you normally do. So it could be, for example, that you're shifting maybe a little bit more load uh, towards uh, because you're collapsing a little bit less. So let's, for example, take your feet. Um, or your Achilles, Achilles tendon and, and, and your legs is that of course the Achilles takes up a great deal of the load when you're running. And as you start to fatigue, the Achilles obviously being a, one of the smaller muscles compared to let's say your thighs and your legs in general, that one will start to collapse a little bit easier. So you are starting to feel, for example, that you don't have the same level of call it springiness anymore. Uh, you are maybe striking a little bit more midfoot or even heel uh, if you don't uh, 
take this into account. But also your foot arc actually uh, acts also as a damper in the whole equation. And when the, here there are even smaller muscle groups and they will also fatigue even quicker uh, normally. Uh, and that means that uh, as you start to run and if you now are starting to fatigue and you start to suddenly that you say, okay, fine, I got more left in the bank, I'm going to go harder now. The problem with that is exactly that you're now starting to shift the load maybe much more to, con to more concentrated places in your legs that the legs is not used to. And this is when you start to, to see maybe injuries are occurring. So first, of course, more like soft tissue injuries. But eventually, if you continue to do this over time, uh, you also start, worst case, ending up with more... Uh, yeah. Bony injuries. Exactly, like that. exactly. So given that potential for injury risk and an age grouper, do you think there should be a lower threshold to perhaps not run and switch it out for another session if you are sore, if you are concerned about an area? Or do you think it's more about getting it right on the input side? So programming properly, being disciplined about that, and then you shouldn't need that the the answer i would like yep to provide is that um it depends uh no <laughs> <laughs> because that doesn't work or it, it works but it is not very applicable or very hard to apply no i would say that uh, at the moment you feel any soreness or pain uh that um doesn't go away uh, and you feel that is also altering your technique yep then you should be careful uh simply because if that if you're st starting to compensate uh, with your technique to let's say remove that pain then you're already shifting that load onto other parts of your body which is maybe not used to have that kind of load either so that's also again easier said than done because uh, people are not very good at even evaluating their own technique and very yep. often it can be even subtle changes so I think it's important to be mindful, be mindful a little bit about how things are. Don't necessarily go like full red alert just because uh, things there, there's a sensation there that you haven't uh, felt before. Be mindful about it. Rather take an observ observation because you can stop, you can stop wherever you want. And unless this is going to tell you, oh, I'm going to break my foot now, the next step I make, sure, of course, stop. But I yet have to experience that kind of case. So I would rather say that, yes, uh, onset of, let's say, discomforts, pains, and these kind of things is not unusual. But then when you start to feel it, be mindful about it. Try to maintain your technique as much as possible as you did, like being uh, being mindful about, okay, run, like really like have, execute with excellent quality technique. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, be where you take more like a mindful or observational approach of, okay, what is it that I'm really feeling here now? And then rather start to make small subtle changes just to see if you can identify and figure out what this really is. And then you decide on whether you're going to slow down and say, hey, I better cut it now. See whether this goes over for the next session. Um, uh, or you actually feel, oh, no, this is fine. I got this under control and you continue. But again, if it starts to to uh, affect your technique, running uh, running form and so on, then then uh, and you're not able to refocus and bring yourself back without a lot of extra stress, then probably bring it down, keep it easy, quit the session. Uh, and if you need to, replace the next running session with... Uh, the discipline that you're worst in swimming session for example if you're not yep. good at that uh, yeah so there's a phrase i like that may be relevant here and it's miklo m-i-c-l-o masterful inactivity with cat-like observation which just says be really mindful of what's going on and observe it very carefully uh, to then make a decision but so just to create an example for the listeners to really um, solidify this for them 
I'm now, I've had a, a pain. I think it's not a good pain. You know, I've got an intense running session coming up, one with significant intensity. Um, and I'm pretty happy that, you know, um, I'm, I'm an even triathlete. I, I swim just as well as I cycle, just as well as I run. So there's not a lot of weaknesses that I need to address specifically. Is it as simple as just, hey, like for the most part, because it's a foot issue, let's just swap it in for cycling and do similarly intense work. Is that a fair way to swap that? No, is where the answer comes. It depends, but uh, <laughs> it always does. No, uh, uh, yes and no. If it's a very running specific issue or problem uh, that you don't feel or it doesn't get worse or you, yeah, but it absolutely doesn't, or best case, you don't actually feel it on the bike. That's absolutely a valid approach uh, to do that. That makes sense. And then, as you said, I mean, the, the bigger context around that is all the stuff we talked about before, which yeah. is, you know, we're reverse engineering a result and we've got uh, a needs analysis done. So now we can actually say we're better off spending that time elsewhere. But as a rough rule of thumb, you can swap out directly if you need to, provided, as you said, it's not making it worse. And that's one of the challenges, I think, with lower limb injuries or lower limb soreness as opposed to upper limb is it's really hard to deload. You can't not walk. People need to walk in life and all those things. So adjusting load is very difficult because we, the load we quantify tends to be training loads. Some of that not even necessarily musculoskeletal as much as it is cardiovascular and yet we're trying to deload a musculoskeletal structure which gets a lot of load from just existing so it makes it a very difficult thing to, to manage but i think that's a great answer yeah. on a previous episode we talked about swimming drills and there's probably some people who had their views challenged on that which i think is positive and i think that's part of what this is about where do you stand on running drills do you have a similar approach which is hey let's barely use them or do you use them more extensively no, we, we barely use them, but it's not because I'm against running drills. It more has to do uh, with being very hard on the priorities of where we spend our time. And uh, again, if Kelvin runs more than 300 kilometers a week, uh, either he runs like freaking fast, those few, or few hours that he's running and spending all the rest of the hours uh, on drills uh, during that week, which probably is not the case, probably all the way around. He does very little drills because, and he actually runs them or use those kilometers to be specific in his running. You can't accumulate 300 kilometers a week because basically there's a time component to it as well. So you need to rest, you need to sleep and these kind of things. So you only got a certain amount of hours available that you can do effectively training. And that means if you want to accumulate 300 kilometers per week, that still is, that's a substantial amount of running that has to happen every day. That means also that for those hours you got available, you either run, have to run like really fast now, or which we know that they don't do. They have a very nice distribution, like most other people have, mindful about uh, how they, they, they distribute intensity. Uh, but that means also that you don't have very much time for drills. So again, to summarize it, I would say that uh, no, we don't use very much drills. I'm not against drills, absolutely, uh, rather than our country. I, I, drills really have a place, but they have a place if you have identified that here is something that we need to address. And then and you think, okay, fine, I think that by doing this, we might be able to, to mitigate or, or um, work on that specific skill, but with one single purpose. And that is not to improve your drill. It is to translate that skill that you're practicing there back into a higher velocity for the same distance or basically being faster on the race distance. Otherwise, it's waste of time. I think that too many people are overcomplicating, uh, overcomplicating things. And uh, again, this is about being mindful as also as a coach. And that is 
that as a coach also I think it is very important to try to observe the athletes and that for many coaches of course they are not able to be in the place where the athletes are but thus it is more important to maybe have a let's say a couple of questions get on the phone and other things with the athletes so to understand a little bit what they feel how do they feel different things what do they feel actually hold them back and the first time you ask this question you might not get any answer at all because it's also about developing a language you need to develop a way of let's say terminology or language that allow you to effectively understand each other and that takes time so I would say when you are more mindful as an athlete and also as a coach and you observe your running technique and you are looking at, okay, so when I do the, like really this more like exhaustive sessions or, or, or key sessions, for example, I feel that what really holds me back here is this. It's absolutely not a problem to be wrong because it basically means that if you didn't nail it the first time, you at least you're not going to spend more time on it. So you're progressing. And basically what you have to remember that again there there are many things we can measure there are even more things we can't measure yet even though we are getting closer and closer to be able to measure a lot of things much or even more things but the point is that the worst thing you can do is not do anything the best thing you can do is actually just start doing something and then start and, and be be mindful be observational try to learn from it because this is actually how you progress this is how you you learn to to um uh, yeah you learn you learn more about yourself uh, the coach learns more about you um, and it allows you to progress make progression in in what you do so again key sessions first of course this is where you should be most mindful about what do you feel hold you back and try to develop a language where you are able to to convey the message and also for the coach so that he is able to understand the message in a way that you are able to find maybe drills for example to start address it but then also at the same time i think it's important to establish also a benchmark okay this is where we are so you both have a benchmark on both okay so this is how i'm executing the session currently and this is how i have progressed lately so obviously uh, stagnation if you have stagnation over a longer period of time then of course it makes sense to start to see whether there are things you can do just remember also that if you are time constrained and you're training five hours a week it's a limit to probably how fast you can run you can't necessarily expect to beat christian and gustav if you only train five hours a week as a triathlete so uh, again uh, you have to put things in perspective but if you start to stagnate and you don't have progress if you have progress continue with what you do if you start to stagnate, and I don't mean like stagnating on one session, I'm thinking now more like stagnation over a block, for example. You don't have development through a block um, in the same way uh, that you expect. So be before you go into a block, I would even say that okay, like this ties back to the training planning. But you basically have, okay, so in this block, we're going to focus on this. This is what we want to develop. So this is the current benchmark, and we want to progress this many percents or whatever, improve this much during this block. If you then see, for example, this is a four-week block, and after two weeks, you're not on track, or you see there are things there, and training really just goes on rails. There are, there are no sicknesses, no injuries, no nothing that are holding you back. Then, of course, you can start to look a little bit into, okay, what what... Is, is, is there any reason uh, are we present are we mindful in a training session are we really executing with highest quality do like all these kind of factors um, if we don't then of course or if we do that and all those things are good then is when I would say that okay fine let's look into um, where do you feel what do you feel is holding you back so when you get progress throughout the session and you're really starting to struggle these kind of what is it natural is it natural that you actually now we are at the point where you actually are naturally reaching a limit so we can't really expect a lot of progress it was more like we we hoped for progress but again 
the progress we can expect now is very low or is it so no no this is we are a place where we know that we can should be able to progress much more and all the conditions are met then i would say okay where 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 do we start and this is about then being mindful about okay where do we f what do we feel hold us back and this is when you so you need a benchmark so you know okay this is where i am currently this is how well i do the session for example currently then you decide okay what drill or what kind of exercise so whatever you want to do strength training that you want to incorporate so but then you, it's important also to then establish a benchmark for that because you also want to track the progress on your drill Otherwise, it's, you are just wasting time on doing some drill and you have you actually no idea whether you're actually progressing on the drill even. So you need actually to establish a benchmark for your drill as well. The first, I would say that here it's important to establish two bench, benchmarks. The first one is basically just, okay, the first drill you do, just you have a, okay, this is, we, we're going to do this drill and we, we, we now want to make this much progress on that drill, for example. So then the first time you do this drill, you use that as a, call it as a reference session, for example. Now what you will expect is that over the next sessions you're going to do this session, you will have quite a lot, bit of progress on that session there. Naturally, because maybe it's a new drill, you haven't done it before, and things that we've never done before, and we start to execute them, we naturally progress like very quickly. But then after some point, you are past this familiarization period, and this will be different depending on, the, let's say, the modality and, and the complexity of the drill that you are doing. And this is when you said, okay, fine, the, this drill, we, we expect you to, to start to, to, to things are, you are through this familiarization phase after, let's say, two weeks or something like this, four weeks, depending on what it is. Strength training, I would typically say that you should probably have like a four-week familiarization period before you really set like a benchmark. So you establish a reference, then you see how much you develop over that, that period. Today's episode is sponsored by Morton, the leader in fueling for endurance sports. With patented hydrogel technology, Morton found a way for athletes like Christian and Gustav to tolerate more carbohydrate during training and racing. The advances in performance when using the Morton gels, drink mixes, and bicarb system have been clear. It's the fuel behind triathlon gold medals, world championships, and world records. Hydrogel technology has no added flavor, preservatives, or colors, and is made with only natural ingredients, so it's clean. Only what's required to aid performance, nothing more. And now you can benefit from the same world-class fueling system thanks to an exclusive one-time code that will give our listeners 20% off the Morton 1-52 collection, a curated selection of products to fuel a one-week of structured training. Especially in training, every fueling moment counts. It's how athletes adapt and race better. Simply add the 1-52 collection to your basket at morton.com and enter the code in our show notes at the checkout. So we've got four weeks. So we've got a familiarization phase done four weeks and that could be strength training, that could be a drill, that could be anything else. Now we have a baseline yep. and we have a predicted trajectory or a hopeful trajectory yep. for transfer to training, which is to say, I have this deficiency, whatever it is. My theory is that this intervention, X intervention should help that, drill, strength training, whatever. Yeah. Now I'm applying that. I have a baseline in that. Now I'm applying it. And I'm hoping for a certain percentage of transfer. So they're never going to be 100%. The more specific it is, the more transfer you will get. Exactly. So, the less specific it is, the less transfer you will get. So even if you don't have, if, if it's very unspecific and you have a hundred percent increase, yep. maybe only a couple of percent will actually translate to exactly. specificity. Yeah. The more specific it is, if you have like ten percent increase in something that's very specific, you can probably almost get ten percent out of that in true performance as yep. well. Yeah. And that's specificity. Right? That is the definition of specificity. And exactly. Specificity comes across any number of criteria it's posture it's time it's speed it's all those things so it's it's a very long continuum but you get a percentage improvement you see a percentage of transfer to training and then you reevaluate it's it's really that simple it's it's theory intervention 
test, retest, adjust, yeah, and course correct as yes. needed. And if you then basically see that when you basically do a retest, so you've done you you you, you set the reference, and then you do a benchmark, and then basically you 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 keep track of the, that. Let's say that an intervention or that drill or that uh, program that you are putting on on the side as well, uh, like strength training. And then after you have to say that okay educate yourself a little bit on what how much time it would normally take for you to progress on on a certain skill uh, so if for example if that you are want to increase your ability to do heavier squats for example then talk to a strength coach or something like that and just ask okay how much progression should i expect here and then i think that a good strength coach can probably ask you a couple of questions and we can only give you i can already probably give you pretty good ideas of how much you can expect to progress uh, over a month for example or every week if you now don't see any progression in that intervention there after you set the benchmark then you have to also look even here now on your drill or exercise strength strength conditioning and you have to look at even at that and see okay should i change something here is there something here not holding me back i'm executing this not correctly for example and that's why i'm not progressing um and then evaluate whether no just need a little bit more time here and then we expect it to change but i think it is important that every time you incorporate a drill you incorporate a strength training program you set two deadlines one where you evaluate the progress of what you do and then there's a final cut the first one basically is acting as more like a okay are we actually doing the right thing here because at some point if you have no change in performance but again remember you're not looking to get stronger in the gym you're looking to get faster in a triathlon and if you don't get fast in a triathlon and then maybe of course you can always say ah but then it, every triathlon is different wind is different courses are different yes okay fine but then look at least at your running specific sessions and key sessions do you actually make progress on your on your keys on your key sessions and if you don't see a progress on your key sessions and probably uh, just just a button that aligned with the intervention you've taken because you should see progression in those sessions anyway so there's a normal rate of progression you should be seeing there so you've either taken an intervention to accelerate that or to break through a plateau yeah there are two scenarios that you would incorporate something new in that respect to to break to a plateau i would probably use specificity yeah uh, but to to work on something that is a limiter this is where i could yeah. maybe be more inclined to go less or less a more more unspecific yep. uh, to try to address that but, but you need to set like some deadlines for where you that you agree with the athlete or you agree together with yep. the coach that okay we expect this much change in this specific drill or strength exercise yep. that you're doing uh, so much progress in within two weeks so much in within four weeks so much within eight weeks and so on and then basically you have to decide okay so how much do we expect or how much do we hope this will translate back into velocity uh, for example in running if it doesn't do that then you have to actually just at some point you have to one first evaluate do are we doing the right thing should we make some changes here is there something in uh, the way we execute the drills or the strength training here that uh, that doesn't allow us to transfer it or we are not even progressing on this on these drills or strength training sessions uh, and make changes to that don't be afraid of that because that's the way you learn and then after another certain period, you just have to say that no, we now we we, we made enough iterations here. It, we are not able to make it translate, and this is when you basically make a change. It doesn't mean that what you're doing is wrong. You are probably on the right track because you already start to experiment and trying to address where it is. So you're getting closer and closer to the problem, but getting closer and closer to the problem, or or getting closer and closer to actually making progress, that is 
a windy road sometimes and you have to be patient. The worst thing that the society actually have adopted today is a way, is is an expectancy for that like we we we're going to have like uh, exponential growth in everything we do. It's rather the opposite. You have how say inverse exponential growth you you, you ex normally you you um, respond very quickly in the beginning and then it will start to taper off and you don't feel that progress anymore it doesn't mean you don't make progress because progress just happens on other places like for example that we learn more we get more experience we understand better what works for us and doesn't work for us we maybe even understand more detail about what works for us when and not so again Patience is also a skill that we actually just have to, to, to learn as well. And the higher level you come, the more patient you have to be in order to expect maybe sometimes also a change in result. But again, agree on deadlines for when you pull a plug on a drill before you start it. Otherwise, you might just say, ah, no, 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 this may, this this will take 10 years. Yeah. Uh, no, you have to have like, this is expectation for how much I want to progress this season. Agree on that together with your coach. And then... You have to evaluate all the interventions and everything you do in that in that light. Yep. So this is going to be a hard question to answer, and I'm not sure it has an answer, or, or the answer is really simple. But in the context of an age group athlete, what's the longest run you would suggest in training for something like for an Ironman or a 70.3? We can use both, either or, something like that. I mean, is the answer as simple as 42.2 and and 21.1 kilometers? Is it that simple, or is there something that you should be considering? Uh, you know, cutting that back because it's not necessary to go all the way. Because I know in marathoning, they'll often say, well, historically, they've said things like, you probably don't need to go more than 35 or 38 kilometers. But there's a lot of people now, Kelvin Kipton being one of them, who's going 40 plus regularly. Yeah. I like to simplify this quite a bit. And that is that uh, if you regularly do 42.2 kilometers in your run, or let's say your competition distance in, in running or duration or more, and you at the same time are able also to to work on the higher intensity, medium and higher intensities as well. Uh, running a marathon will be a walk in the park. Yep. It's like an everyday everyday undertaking for you. It's like yeah, marathon. Yeah, I'm doing a marathon today, tomorrow, over tomorrow, whatever. It doesn't matter. I don't care. I've done this multiple times before. That's a completely different thing for a guy that maybe runs, let's say, if you run 15 kilometers a week, and that's like a couple of kilometers per day. Like running a marathon is going to be a massive undertaking for you. Yep. So again, this comes down to specificity and adaptation, these kind of things. Of course, we are really like bluntly just oversimplifying, <laughs> oversimplifying here now. But I think the most important thing is, again, to look at the limiters, what holds you back from running faster. And that doesn't mean necessarily running a marathon will make you faster. If you only have the possibility to run 60 kilometers per week, uh, or 50 kilometers per week, I would probably say that spending uh, one of the days running a marathon is probably not very smart. Maybe in a larger picture where you look at it more on a monthly basis or even a block, a mesocycle level, for example. Yeah, surely that maybe you could put in like a marathon there as a part of it, but you have to look at it as a, as a bigger periodization. And then it can absolutely make sense to do it. But it is important to make sure that it doesn't become a limiter. It ties back to everything else we have discussed, and that is that you have to understand what is holding you back. What what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And how do you address them? And if one way to address them to really make become faster is running a marathon, well, then it's obvious. Go run a marathon. Yep. Yeah. But I like to bring Christian and Gustav absolutely when we go, when, when there's Ironman, yes, bring them up there because they have enough running volume that we can actually spend uh, 
quite a few sessions over a month, for example, during a mesocycle on doing marathon running. Just to help uh, listeners to really contextualize that, in that example you gave of, say, running 50 kilometers a week, spending 80% of your weekly running volume on one day doesn't make sense, 100%, but it may make sense to spend one of the weeks of 80%, right? That 80% one week in a longer term vision. And that would probably exist somewhere between three and six weeks out from the true race day because you've built up towards that. You've probably been going maybe once a month and doing one longer run, spending you know one of those weeks a month building up that long run such that you can get close to it because you've addressed it as a limiter. So if your ability as a limiter is whatever and running a marathon or close to it will help, you need to build to that over a longer period of time. And I think understanding the context in a longer time frame across a season, across multiple months and even within a month rather than thinking about everything in a week yeah, makes sense. Again, I think uh, this also is in the context of how much how much hours uh, hours you also got available of as course. well. Because the distance you have a possibility to run during a week, for example, is 50, 60 kilometers. I think that then probably running a marathon or close to a marathon the week before is going to not be no. there. That, that, that won't bring out your game on on, um, on race day. Because recovery um, will be too long from that. Yeah, and you're you not, can't yeah, and, tolerate that yeah, load. And you're also, yeah, uh, it, it, it's, uh, and I'm, I don't think necessarily that will be the main limiter for you no. either. Um, of course, Again, you would find those cases that maybe would benefit from it, from it as well. So you would have to look a little bit on case-to-case basis. But generally speaking, I would say uh, the more volume you do, so if you are capable of like running 100 and between 100 and 120, 150 kilometers a week in your program, then for sure dialing in a couple of marathons over a block is uh, probably quite good to work on other limiters as well because then you are also getting into the domain of more that uh, you absolutely don't want the specificity to hold you back either. Uh, how to make this simple? Um, I think that makes a ton of sense, which is you need to contextualize things. So you need to consider what your weekly volume is as a macro concept, but then in the run specific discipline as well and how that plays into this. It speaks to what you said about tapering. It speaks to a number of things, which is what you habitually do is going to limit and inform what you can do in any one day. Yep. So it'll inform how long it takes you to recover from things. It'll inform how you can tolerate load. So that needs to be the context with which you plan things. Yeah. So if you're only running 40 kilometers a week, then the Ironman marathon is going to be as stressful as a training week of running. And so your taper needs to consider that. And so does your training because you can't go then go, I'm going to week, spend my whole weekly running volume on one day and anticipate recovering fine from that because you probably won't. Or if you do, it's going to take probably a month, not a couple of days, which people who are running 120 kilometers a week, if they do 40 kilometers on one day, yeah, it's not so bad for them because they probably had a couple of days off before. It's now all of a sudden you've done 40 kilometers on one day, which is a third of your weekly running volume, but you had two days without running. So now all of a sudden you've done a third of your weekly running volume across three days. All of a sudden it sounds really reasonable. So that stuff is, is often overlooked, but I think is important. We are brought to you today by Plasmade. Plasmade is a proprietary liquid performance and recovery supplement formulated using only one active ingredient, French maritime pine bark extract, aka PBE. PBE is an adaptogen which triggers your body to produce a stabilized form of nitric oxide, which is a powerful vasodilator, improving blood flow to muscles and the brain. Plasmade is for use pre and post exercise, augmenting other energy and hydration supplementation used. In addition to all of this, Plasmade also has powerful anti-inflammatory and antioxidant effects which aid in recovery from training and competition. 
for your 25% discount on Plasmade and to learn more, head to the show notes. But I think also one way to bring in somewhat more specificity to it is that you can, because one of the consequences of running long is of course that uh, intensity is going to go down. Yep. This is also where um, I like much more also to think of RPE not in terms of a two-dimensional, like a one-dimensional system where you just say, okay, this is like a whatever intensity and you use it as a form to gauge intensity. I like much more to use RPE as a function of fatigue. Yep. So basically it's both a combinator of X and Y. X and Y being X is intensity yeah. and Y is duration. Uh, no, opposite. No, opposite. So Y is intensity, X is duration. Yes. So that's to say... For, for distance, for, that, for yeah. that matter. Yeah. So that's to say, if I'm running an RPE of what most people would use it, if I say my RPE is three, that will probably increase as yes. duration goes yes. along. Yes. So to say oh, I'm running an RPE of three lacks a level of textual detail, uh, contextual detail for you. Ex- exactly. That, that's why uh, I like much more to use RPE, whether we should call it something different, but basically uh, um, as a function of fatigue, so, for example, one way I normally um, I double check this with my athletes is that I actually ask them also after. So, for example, if an athlete tells me that they are at, a, say, the seven, mm-hmm. so we would normally say, okay, seven sits very close to maximum lactic steady state, for example, or metabolic steady state, seven to eight. And of course, I have a fairly good idea then of how much, for example, carbohydrates they're using, and I know approximately how much they're feeding of carbohydrates. I know approximately how large their carbohydrate stores are. We have expectations for how long they would be able to to sustain that kind of intensity. So a control question for me is like, if an athlete says, that, okay, um, yeah, this is feel like a seven or eight, I would immediately ask, so you can continue to do this for another hour at this certain intensity, because that should be the expectation. If you're at a seven, for example, you should be able to do it for, let's say another hour. Yeah, I, if, if, I'm, if I stay here now, this is something I can do for an hour more. Okay, perfect. Then, then it's fairly well calibrated. Yep. But sometimes like, because zero to 10, for example, it, it's a arbitrary scale or, or basically uh, it really, it, it lacks a bit of context. Yep. But if you ask somebody, and they're sitting at a certain intensity and you just add a time component. Can you do this for 30 minutes? Like how much? 10, 20, 30, 60, 90, two hours, four hours to that. Then basically you force them to think, okay, yeah, maybe this is a little bit too hard. No, I don't think that, okay, so dial it back because that's what we're actually focusing on here. So even though you ask somebody, okay, does this feel like a, where, where are you? This is a, call it, let's say we are on a threshold session, for example, to use a very, very vague expression. But most people use that, so that's a good reference. And let's say that you're going to be on a seven on this scale or this session. If you feel at a seven towards the end of the session, that's very different than if you started a seven. For me, that's almost like okay. So you can just continue then your threshold session now for another hour. Is that, is that what you're saying? No. Okay. So where are you then? I could probably. How many more minutes can you do this? Okay. Probably. If I if, if if you really like force me, uh, maybe another five ten minutes. Okay, fine. But then you're not at a seven anymore. Then you are at a nine, and at the moment you actually stop and ask you how hard. And you, you and I say no. You need to do another minute. I said no. I can't. I, I I'm really exhausted. I can only. I, I have to soft pedal in order to be able to continue. Okay, fine. Then you are probably pretty close to a ten. Yep. But the ten for me is not something where like even when I do max like all out with, with Christian and Gustav even, uh, if they come in and they say to me, ah, this, is, uh, this is a nine, okay, continue. Uh, I, of course, I, I'm, being a, I'm exaggerating a little bit now, but I do actually ask them straight after they come in, was this a 10? 
or how does this how did this feel and if we agreed on this is going to be like a max for example then it has to be a 10 otherwise you didn't max out your capabilities and that is in how say that's independently or whether it's an uh, interval lasting for for 10 seconds or what is the interval lasting for 10 hours or 10 minutes it really a 10 is basically all out for that specific intensity that you are nailing at. so you, you you've exhausted yourself and that's why for example if you ask for example Kelvin or Kipchoge for example to go on a treadmill and run at 21 kilometers per hour and you do like uh, 10 minutes of that if they say that that's, that that's like for most people that like that they wouldn't be even be close to even complete that but they should at least then report that ah, this feels ah, like a four five something like this uh, but if you ask them again after two hours they would probably be very close to a 10 on that one same with christian and gustav as well when they are doing call it treasure interval ask them early in the se session it might not even be like a seven it can even be they see that the numbers are there they're right but it feels ah, this is, feels good i feel strong today yeah this is a six doesn't mean that then you should bring it up to a seven and then force them to go higher in power because you're early in the session and you have maybe now 60 70 80 maybe even more minutes in front of you where you're basically going to accumulate now time duration on that specific power output and that is going to bring you most likely close to a nine towards the end of the se session and maybe sometimes even to a 10 but the times you're going to go to a 10 you have to be like really mindful about and you have to have a for in my in my philosophy you have to have a really good reason for why you want to bring somebody to a 10 uh yeah and that speaks a lot to something we talked about earlier which is kind of that reps in reserve concept that you really liked and, and i tend to like it as well given my background where you need to understand how far you are from failure or exhaustion or something like that and that gives a layer of texture and that actually in strength training rpe tracks really well with reps in reserve and so i think there's something to be brought across to, to endurance training which is probably what you're doing yeah uh, yeah no. we already covered it as so i yeah. think i said that in one of the earlier episodes that uh, i like re uh, repetitions in reserve or like we call intervals in reserve this is where I ask the athletes who, how much more time could they actually do. And if they say I could do probably another 15 minutes and if I know the intervals we are doing is like 10 minutes long, well, okay, fine. Then you can probably do at least one and a half more interval before, maybe even two more intervals before you exhaust. And that is something that I really like because it means basically that in a session, if we're looking to bring an athlete close to exhaustion, and that is the goal and not not too exhaustion but closer to it because we really are we are now having a key session so we are looking to make a dent in the curve as we talked about in one of the previous episodes that would basically be okay fine this today actually today is the day where he is really ready for that so today we're actually then going to do we are actually going to bring in at least one more interval and then maybe another one as well we talked a bit already about uh running distances weekly volumes these sort of things and the answer to this might be it depends on uh, the gap analysis and the performance model. But in general, would you say it's better to intensify run training or extensify it? So do we want to be running certain durations and then making that more intense broadly? Or do we want to be running a certain intensity and extensifying that broadly? This is, of course, again, something that depends because you want to spend the time where you get results mm -hmm. or where you're able to move the, move the needle. 
And uh, whether you're gonna extensify or intensify, I would probably say that like uh, like initially, if you if I had no information, I would probably just say extensify. Yep. But the problem with extensifying it basically it then tells that or then it basically uh, dictates that you need to have more time available. Yep. If you don't have more time available, obviously you don't have very yeah. much opportunity to do, do very much uh, extensifying. You can, you can of course decide to exactly like to start to bring down, for example, pauses, for example, breaks. Uh, so you get, you condense your workouts more and in that sense, uh, extensify uh, to some extent, but you'll, you'll anyway, very soon face the time constraints uh, yeah. of that. So that means basically then that the next step you then basically have available is that you need to start to intensify instead. Yeah. And that that's all in the context of a profile that dictates that extensification is possible or, or meaningful yeah. rather than, you know, if you've got a very flat horizontal profile, then extensifying yeah. isn't necessarily the answer. You probably need to intensify for a while before you then extensify. Yeah. Something I've been very interested in is um, given some of the work you've done uh, with companies is super shoes, proportion of time in and out of them, so to speak. So if we call super shoe higher stack, um, more new age foam and carbon plated. So if we call that a super shoe is how much time should we be spending in and out of super shoes as a proportion of run week and does this change across the season i guess with the context of age group athletes so then i want to introduce the term high efficiency shoes uh, as opposed to a super shoe and the reason for that is because it again of course fits better into the performance model as well where we talk about efficiency and then let's say different layers and different equipment different tools different methods and everything and that Um, that distinction probably answers a question for listeners who've been listening because yeah. they, they straight away go, oh, that's how he views it. Therefore, yeah. this is where it fits into a system, which is the beauty of the performance model is it allows you to categorize where these interventions, where these tools, where these techniques will fit into a model because you have a structured way of thinking. And yeah. whether it's the performance model or not that people are using as their model of performance uh, or your performance model or the Norwegian model of performance or whatever you want to call that, having a system allows you to make decisions and allows you to understand where things and concepts fit. And that's the most important thing, systematic thinking, regardless yeah. of which system you use. This is one, but there are others. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I would say that um, it's very tempting to, of course, run a lot in um, high efficiency shoes just because... Uh, They're fun. Yeah, you run you run longer for the same time, you run faster, uh, yeah. So it's I, I have no problem understanding that it can be quite fun to run in high efficiency shoes. Um, but one thing that we have to remember is that the way two ways that high efficiency shoes are working or making you more efficient. One is the let's say call it acutely that it has properties that uh, uh, helps certain biomechanic traits and by that i mean that for example because you have a carbon plate um, in the uh, so in the soul that means that for example we know that the foot arc you have very a lot of small muscle groups which is um, uh, fatigue faster than for example your than your legs and your thighs and when you're running what happens there is that in the beginning of a run you typically have like a very nice stride and all these kind of things one of the things that one have to remember is that for example christian and gustav they have virtually no change in their stride efficiency from the beginning to the end of a marathon after they've been swimming and biking so 
it's not like like it's natural to or like everybody fatigues like significantly you know it, it depends very much more on training but of course if you never used to run a marathon that's of course the benefit of having a big volume in your training and we also just t- touched upon uh, Calvin and Kipchoge for example yeah. as well which uh, are running 300 k's a week at most uh, of course, then a marathon is a walk in a park because yes. it, it basically it's just a, such a small proportion of even what you are used to do every day or every week, every week that fatigue is not a problem in the same sense as a guy that is basically running maybe like five hours a week or even maybe less four four hours a week because then a marathon is actually quite a solid undertaking mm-hmm. um, a huge jump up even from the training they are used to do and in that case you will of course experience far more fatigue because you don't have the specificity and all other things that you basically gain from having a large volume so then back to the shoes and efficiency and uh, so on. What the carbon plate basically does is that those small muscle groups that you have in your foot, or that's one of the muscle groups that basically fatigues very quickly. What the carbon plated uh, shoes does is that they basically offload a lot of these small muscle groups that are in your foot. And they basically, if you have a good, like a really well-designed shoe, so you have the carbon plate that sits underneath and basically supports all these small muscle groups that sits in the foot there. And then basically, if you have a good last that sits on top as well, that anchors very well around your, your ankles or let's say, yeah, around your foot lower or lower leg, they basically will, that, that carbon plate will help transmit parts of that load onto your legs or let's say your Achilles and legs as well and that means also that now you won't necessarily fatigue equally fast in those small muscle groups as well because you're shifting or let's say you're distributing the load a little bit more evenly around on bigger muscle groups as well but one thing we also have to remember is that there is a reason for why we design the way we are. So we have this small muscle group in the foot because they are there also to help dampening take away so that you don't imp- like get like big big loads on like concentrated places in in your in your foot. So there's a time and there's a place for carbon plated shoes as well. I'm gonna exaggerate now to try to explain it a bit more where we want, and that is that. If you go to the gym and you only train your upper body, well, you're not going to get big legs from that. You'll get a big upper body. And that's to say a little bit the same thing here as well. If you use a carbon plate, a shoe, that will not give the same training stimulus to the small muscle groups that are in your foot as well. Uh, as opposed to having what I would call a low efficiency shoe that basically forces you to actively work more also with your your foot and the small muscles that are in the foot and and use that also for dampening so that's why you should basically not only go out and only do running in your carbon plated shoe because yes in initially you will probably have better performance but that performance will drop off as basically you are starting now to lose maybe a little bit of that stimulus in your in your the muscles that sits in 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 the foot and that's not going to make you a faster runner so that's why it is important to to alternate a little bit you use a little bit high efficiency shoes you use a little bit low efficiency shoes so that you basically also maintain the function of the muscles that um, yeah, or the properties of the muscles that sit cells in the foot yep and so that's the acute benefit you mentioned uh, like a subacute chronic benefit as well so is that about accumulating more volume as a result of being able to run faster no i would rather say that like acutely um acutely of course you'll run faster yep. uh, but uh, how say then more chronically what will yep. happen if you only run in carbon plated shoes is that actually what happens is that you lose efficiency again so you actually when you have like if you have never been running in carbon plated shoes before you take it on you're already there probably in your first session already like immediately feel okay they're here they're, they're, there's a difference and you might it might even show up in several several of your metrics but 
if you only start now using carbon plated shoes is that you will start to see that maybe it's worst case you are you you are not progressing anymore you even maybe stagnate and go backwards slightly mm. and that's why it is important to alternate this a little bit because you have to remember that the carbon plated shoes is something that gives you an additional benefit it's not like the carbon plated shoes it's not it's not like that carbon plate is like completely stiff it is quite flexible so that means that you still need some strength in your foot in order to don't collapse fully and again remember the reason why we train is to become better and that goes for both the whole body but also come from parts of the body so providing also more stimulus to the to the to the foots as well so that you put it in there that's good but i think like again specificity of course you can't if you only run low efficiency shoes and then suddenly on race day you show up in your carbon plated shoes ah, i i don't know I don't know if I would do that uh, either. So if I were to condense this down, okay, so should you use, for age group, should you use high efficiency shoes and how much should you, you should use in these kind of things? I would definitely say that don't uh, don't use high efficiency shoes all the time. Uh, make sure that you alternate between high efficiency shoes and low efficiency shoes and so on. And then after Paris, we'll come back with very much more specific details on how to periodize this. We'll answer to it. Yep, yeah. perfect. Alrighty, I think that's a really nice bow put on the running episodes. Thank you, love, for joining us for that one. And we'll be back again with our next episode. And there it is. The run is done. And that is us done for training. Now, of course, we are not done for the season. We are back next week with nutrition. So to make sure you don't miss that one, subscribe to the podcast. Of course, rate the podcast to help other people discover it and share it with a friend who you think would enjoy the run episode. Of course, you may also have questions. Please do send those in. As I've mentioned before, our final episode of the season, which is coming up, will cover some of your questions. And so do send them in via Instagram DM to the Centara Tech Instagram account, via email to info at centaragroup.com. Or if you're on Spotify, down the bottom, there's a Q&A section. So do that there. Thank you very much again, and we will see you next week. Good morning.